Hi, everybody, and welcome to the Cultural Studies Podcast. My name is Toby Miller, and I have two distinguished guests today. They are... Neil Krauss, University of Wisconsin, River Falls. And John Shelton, uh, University of Wisconsin, Green Bay. So thanks to both of you for being here. Neil is a recently recovered victim of the podcast. John is entering for the first time, but I hope it won't be the last. And it's a great privilege to have you both here. Now, Neil, I asked you a few days ago what was currently dynamizing you, preoccupying you, interesting you. We're, we've gone forward a bit since then. A lot has happened. What's currently on your mind? Well, I think that, um, you know, John and myself are are pretty active in the University of Wisconsin uh, system. And we're, you know, we're constantly talking about what is the future of higher education, um, you know, not only in the state, but but in the in the United States. It, it seems as if and perhaps we could talk about this today a little bit, um, Toby. It seems as if neoliberalism, as we understand it is is perhaps changing or crumbling a bit. Um, some of the old assumptions are being questioned. Um, the notion that that John and I have spent quite a bit of effort trying to dis- d- dispute or dispel that education can fix inequality, education can can somehow magically erase um, uh, wage stagnation and so forth for so many people. I think that, you know, those arguments are gaining a little bit of momentum and, and, and I, you know, I, I see the significant uptick in, in union activity around the country, um, as a positive sign that, that perhaps the dominant paradigm of the last several decades is, is, uh, going to transform into something that's more beneficial to more people. Thanks, Neil. John, same question to you and, or you might pick up on what Neil just said. Yeah. So, so first of all, I'll just say, you know, for those of you listening to this, uh, Neil Krauss is uh, an, a very important intellectual and uh, uh, his argument in his book that I'm sure you all have already heard about is, is very important. And Neil has been a generative influence on me. Um, Neil and I talk regularly and sometimes it kind of feels like we share a brain. What I'll add to that is, um, you know, we're both very active in the labor movement here in Wisconsin. So I'm the president of the faculty and staff union at UW-Green Bay. Neil's the president of the faculty and staff union at UW-River Falls. And so, you know, we've we've had these conversations at the academic level for a very long time, but I think we're both very invested in um, bringing this into the work that we're doing on our campuses and in the UW system more broadly to try and 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 save, obviously higher ed has never been without its problems, but to try and save a version of higher ed that uh, the students and the public in our state deserve, which is one that's more than just basically like, um, you know, like kowtowing to the supposed needs of employers uh, and, and giving our students a well-rounded education that opens doors for them and, and making sure that higher ed is accessible to every single uh, student in our state, whether they come from an, an elite family or a working family. And, and that's all very much under duress right now. Our, our, you know, outside of UW-Madison, which is the flagship campus, we have 13 campuses in the UW system. Madison's the flagship and probably will always be fine. 
the the rest of the UW system is is being dismantled under right right underneath us, right? Um, by administrators who have still bought into this neoliberalism and, and haven't gotten the memo that like uh, that's that's not an argument that the the rest of the state is buying anymore. Our students aren't buying it. The general public isn't buying it. That's one of the reasons we've got this this you know deep uh, reservoir of uh, right wing populist conservatism in our state and this country. High rent plays a role in that. And and so what we're trying to do, what I try to do every day is to work on organizing the, the faculty and staff, the people that do the work on our campuses and the students to fight back against this and, and to defect and to defend the 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 promise of uh, public higher education. So I'm never like not thinking about that, but we've got some big campaigns in the work this semester um, that are building on some really, really bad things that have happened in the UW system over the past year. Well, I, I was about to ask you to elaborate for folks on the UW system a bit, but I think you've done it excellently. So um, this is basically the way that most public higher education works in the United States. It's it's a constitutionally state issue. Um, and there is normally a research one school that's public in every state. And then there are others that also have high quality faculty but maybe don't grant doctorates or don't have medical schools or law schools or some mixture of, of that. I say this because the plurality of our listeners are based in the U.S., but the majority is not. So just a little bit of context. And also to say that Wisconsin outside universities has a long radical tradition on the left as well as a right wing element. And I think it's very important people know about that and not buy into this notion of, apart from the three biggest cities, the U.S. is a bastion of conservatism and reaction. It's really not. And the upper Midwest, places like Minnesota uh, and, and Wisconsin, but even further south, have important traditions as well. Um, just to under, underline that. I wonder if you could tell us a little bit, John, about some of these campaigns not to pry into trade secrets, but the campaigns that you guys are involved in that are running now or are set to run and that are, you know, publicly discussable. Yeah. So the thing that you have to recognize, you, I mean, you, you hit on the the state by state nature of the university system that that also applies to um, uh, public employee labor rights. So you know, in in a place like the UK, right? Like public employees across the nation have the same labor rights. I'm pretty sure uh, about that. I'm, I think I'm right though. Um, in the US, it, every state has their own laws. So in some states like um, New Jersey, right? Uh, uh, public employees have, especially in higher ed, have pretty strong labor rights. And so you have unions that collectively bargain. In Wisconsin, we don't have that. We don't have the right to collectively bargain. But of course we have, First Amendment rights, right? We have we have the right to speech and assembly and, and petition of grievances, which is the bedrock of American constitutional democracy. So uh, we have uh, unions on virtually every or on every campus in the UW system, and uh, you know what we what we do is you know we use the kind of legal uh, the things that are legal to to push for uh, better salaries, better working conditions, and resources our students need. So. You know, I'm sure Neil can talk about this better than I can, but like we've had over a decade of austerity in the UW system. It's a conscious political choice um, and uh, it's it's been pushed really hard by the Republican Party. And in my view, Democrats haven't had most of them. Some of them have, but most of them haven't had a very good answer for it. 
And, you know, so what that's meant is dramatic underfunding of the UW system. And now the right has weaponized culture wars to go after things even more. So um, it's, I, I don't, I don't, we don't have time to get into all of the kind of details, but basically our, our UW system board of regents about a month ago, a little over a month, just made this deal with right wing legislators uh, because they wanted an engineering building and, and, and at Madison, actually. And, um, you know, because the uh, the right was holding up raises for UW employees that they had already agreed to in the budget uh, and basically uh, gave the legislature kind of a toehold into determining how we use our resources. So they forced the UW system to cut a bunch of diversity, equity and inclusion positions. And, you know, faculty and staff across the UW system understood this for what it was, a political attack on the intellectual integrity of the UW system. So we already had some things in the works there because we saw this coming, uh, but we're working on a few things right now. Number one, we're pushing for a concerted meet and confer relationship with our administrators on, an, on about half of the campuses in the UW system. Um, that's not collective bargaining, but what that is, is it's a way for us as a union to start saying like, no, like shared governance isn't the way to solve these problems. It's not going to actually ever improve things on our campuses. We have to actually, as a union, pull together and start pushing our administration to to provide the resources we deserve. The other thing that's happening is, and I can't say too much about this, but we're coordinating a series of demonstrations across the UW system that will be happening in the near future. That's That's sort of in progress because... Faculty and staff are, are fed up with this and they're willing to fight for the future that we deserve and that our students deserve. And so I'm, I'm really, you know, I've been I've also been vice president of higher ed for our, the state federation of, of unions in this in the state uh, American Federation of Teachers for uh, about eight years now. And this is the most militant I've seen faculty and staff. The, it's the worst I've seen morale and the best I've seen the militants. So, you know, we're making some progress in getting people to see that collective action is the way to actually change things. I'm really excited by that. I know Neil is too. And um, I think it's, it, you know, there's that kind of old adage that like out of crisis comes opportunity. I don't know if that's, I don't know if it's true that like the Chinese character for crisis and opportunity are actually the same or not, but that's, you know, the sort of adage or whatever. And that's what we're seeing now. So I, I'm, it's it's weird because I, as I see things being dismantled, I'm also more hopeful about our future than I ever have been because people are are taking action. Yeah, and and, and if I could expand on the the point of austerity that John raised, I think one of the the big reasons that you know John and and I and others are uh, hopeful and optimistic is because I think increasingly our colleagues uh, and the citizens. Uh, see austerity, particularly during a time when the state has a historic budget surplus, as kind of crazy. We're we're cutting funding for public higher education, not only in Wisconsin, but in a number of states around the country, at a time when many states actually have budget surpluses. It's as if no one remembers the politics of, you know, 15, 20, 25 years ago, where when there was a surplus, it was good news for everybody. It was good news for everybody. When it was a deficit, then that would be a pretext to, to cut spending. But now we're, we're seeing in Wisconsin and many other states, wait a minute, there's actually, we're drowning in cash and we're cutting funding for public higher education. I think uh, a lot of uh, our colleagues are waking up to that fact because they're, we're trying to wake them up to that fact. 
It's not coming from the University of Wisconsin system. I mean, the University of Wisconsin system is very, very committed to austerity. Very much committed to austerity. Very much committed to uh, basically saying it's just how it is now. It's just how it is now. Public public institutions are antiquated. I mean, it's sort of the the feeling that I get when I hear a lot of our, um, you know, a, a lot of individuals high up in the system speak. And you know, this is a political decision that's sort of and, one and, year at a time. And one usually, time. Neil, yeah. austerity does not apply to the proliferation of bullshit jobs. Which I don't mean bullshit jobs in the sense of David Graydon. I mean bullshit jobs in the sense of people who don't teach, don't research, don't cook, don't clean, get paid hundreds of thousands of bucks a year and are administrators. There are more and more of these people engaging in surveillance of everyday academic life who don't actually do anything. There's no other value, who don't produce anything. There's no austerity applied to them ever, ever. No. Can I can I add one thing to this too? Because when Neil's talking about the the administration, right? Um, you know, these are at this point we have a board of regents, and in Wisconsin, the board of regents is appointed by the governor. So we've had a Democratic governor uh, for what six years now, Neil, and uh, almost six years. And um, you know, like he he's an educator. He 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 was the uh, superintendent of the state superintendent of schools, right? Which, ha- which had a, um, a seat, uh, an ex officio seat on the board of regents. So, so he's been on the board of regents and, you know, so right now we have a board that is almost all Evers appointees and they basically capitulated to this deal, right? They, they've been, you know, like, I, I hate to say it, but like they've, they've, because I'm a Democrat, I'm a proud Democrat, uh, I'm running in a city council election right now, as, and I'm I'm happy to be a Democrat, right? But uh, but but they've they've failed to defend the UW system, and it's because they've bought into the kind of austerity politics that Neil is is talking about. And I think a lot of people in this state are deeply deeply frustrated by that because, like, with friends like these, you know, like who's gonna who's gonna defend us? They're, you know, like from from the Republicans who would just see us not exist at all. Um, so that's how deep this austerity stuff goes, and that's what Neil and I are saying when we're like these people aren't getting the memo like because because there's no way forward through austerity right it's it's we're going to get some version of deep deeply right reactionary politics or we're going to get a version of social democracy that includes higher ed in this state that in this country that will actually work for working people and that's kind of where we are there's this this neoliberal austerity isn't sustainable anymore it's one or the other and the irony here as as listeners and i learned from neil the other day when we discuss the fantasy economy, is that this comes with an investment ideologically in education or a castigation of education as what should be the pathway out of political economic crisis. In in your book, uh, John, The Education Myth, you talk about this and you refer to the doctrine of human capital. I wonder if you could explain a little bit about Gary Beckerism and how that has proliferated and what critiques exist to counter its hegemonic status. Yeah, sure. And so, so Neil and I, we, we talk about this a lot and we were both talking pretty regularly while we were both writing our, our books. Um, you know, and, and I think what I really, there's, I think there's a few things that added the conversation, but maybe the most central thing is, and this is where our different disciplines are really important, right? Neil's a political scientist, I'm a historian. 
So for me, the the by kind of excavating the history in a deep sense, you know, for me, it shows like this human capital argument, which I'll get to in just a second, has actually been a really recent argument in American politics, right? That actually for the vast majority of American history, working people didn't think about economic opportunity or economic security through the prism of like getting job skills or getting an education. They thought about ways to to create policies like you know to build strong unions and and you know social uh safety nets right that was the essence of the of the new deal in the 1930s um and so this is very very recent so what happens is a group of economists in at at the University of Chicago right which is this kind of bastion of of neoliberal thought uh in the 20th century for uh, probably a lot of your listeners know something about that but we think a lot about Milton Friedman as the sort of uh you know most important of these folks, or at least we do in, in the U.S., I think. But, um, you know, you've got uh, other people like, and Friedman was very much into the human capital stuff, but you've got people like Gary Becker, um, you know, actually this dude named Theodore Schultz, who was kind of a neo-Keynesian, um, like he wasn't a hard right person like Becker was. Uh, but the the consensus was, right, they looked at how prosperous the United States was, right, in the 1940s and 50s. And how broadly prosperous it was, right, for working people. And instead of looking at things like labor unions, right, which had their high watermark of of membership in the U.S. in 1953, it was about 38%, something like of the non-farm labor force, something like that. Uh, or looking at, you know, progressive taxation or looking at state investment in things like housing, all these, you know, all these, um, you know, uh, uh, social supports that working people needed. They said, you know what? Look at people's educational attainment. That that's that's increasing very dramatically, and and it was right. Uh, but they they mistook, uh, maybe willingly, maybe uh, uh, you know, just an oversight. They mistook uh, correlation for causation, right? And they said, okay, so what must be happening here is that people's education level is making them better suited for jobs and making the economy more prosperous in the aggregate. And the reality was it was actually all those other things. Sure, like people had better education. That probably played some role in making the economy more productive. But what they did is they started pushing this argument that uh, individual acquisition and what they called human capital, the skills that somebody would need to sell themselves better in the labor market, uh, that was the way to make the economy more prosperous and to, and to help working people. Um, the term itself, human capital, is is deeply problematic, right? I mean, what what most of us do every day is we sell our labor, and so it's a. I, in the book, I say this is a monumental sleight of hand to change people into something like to to, to like actually like erase the labor relationship that's existing by having people think about themselves as capital instead of thinking about themselves as labor. It's a huge inversion of what's actually going on, and this this argument starts to filter into political discourse in the 1960s, actually with the Lyndon Johnson administration before this gets anywhere near conservatives. Um, the conservative version of this, of course, as as Neil talks about in the, in the 80s with the Reagan administration is a, is a far worse version of, of this sort of idea. But here's what's really important, but I could go through all the, the sort of history of it, but I won't right now. But like what's important about it is because it focuses on the individual, what it tells people is your economic success in the society is due to your ability to get the right education. And so what that does is it degrades the ability for people to take collective action uh, and it and it gives them a, a narrative uh, for how things change politically uh, that that focuses on the individual, which which leads to people, frankly, internalizing it when, you know, we've got a, an economy that 
you just look at the data, right? It, it doesn't, Neil's talked about this a lot. It doesn't actually work for most working people. Uh, economic inequality is on the rise. When you adjust for inflation, most people are making less money now than they did in the in the early 1970s. But what do they what do they see? They're like, well, I didn't get the right education, or I didn't major in the right thing, right? Or I should have gone to college, or I should have gone to this college. Instead of, of instead of seeing things for how they are, and the kind of collective action that needs to be taken, the, the human capital has done massive damage to the to the set of political possibilities in this country, and, and that's that I think is the is the big argument of my book. Neil, I wonder if you'd like to comment on that question of human capital and the way in which education is in a big sense a huge part of it, along with the fantasy that we are all ratiocinative maximizers of utility, uh, be that as students or consumers, that consumer sovereignty position that animates so much of this. Yeah, I think John laid it out really well how human capital came to become, <clears throat> excuse me, so dominant um, and really, you know, laid the groundwork for what he uh, accurately calls the education myth and what I call the fantasy economy. Um, it, On the one hand, education is, on average, more education is associated with greater income. I mean, that's that's a given. That's not untrue. That people with bachelor's degrees tend to have higher income at any one point in time and over their lifetime than people with high school degrees and and so on and so forth. But the real problem, the the tremendously huge problem of the human capital uh, uh, paradigm and the education myth and the fantasy economy is that it, they all assume that we can educate our way out of uh, low wages and inequality and poverty and all the rest of it. And of course we can't do that. We can't, that that's not how things work. Um, so on one hand, I mean, a lot of folks, I, I, I know this and, and I think John would agree with me. A lot of people are really you know, they, they sincerely believe that education is the, the way to, to, to fix poverty. And they'll point to, you know, individuals or small numbers of people that, that, you know, grew up in poverty and then got an education and now are middle class or upper middle class. And of course those people exist. Of course they do. Um, but, you know, a program that says that all of our social policy is going to be on education and that's going to be the entire discussion for economic opportunity. That's going to be the only mechanism by which people can can move up the economic ladder or have economic security. That's what's caused education to be in such a, a you know politically precarious state for several decades because we can't do that. We can't create middle class security for people, right? All the things that John mentioned can do that labor unions, uh, increasing wages, um, you know, if business culture were different um, and, and you know, everyone got a, a, a raise that was at the rate of inflation every single year, if the minimum wage went up with inflation um, and, and a whole range of other things, those are the things that actually create economic opportunity for everyone. 
Now, and and again, I mean, I'm I have a PhD and I'm a college professor, and John does too, and you do too, Toby. And and uh, I'm not, you know, I think what I say and what John says gets caricatured as oh, you're a post education. I mean, to the contrary, to the contrary, I'm a big supporter of education, right? And as is John, and as is you know all of our colleagues. We recognize though the limits of what education can do, and and that's that's. That's the, the the difference. That's the point that we're making. Can I add something? Go ahead. Can I go can ahead, John? Real, real quickly, Toby, because mm. this is a really important point. Neil and I have had to answer this question a lot. Like, are you anti-education? Yeah. Um, and and I want to point out how, like, kind of bring this together with the UW system that we all deserve. Okay, so there's this thing in Wisconsin called the Wisconsin Idea, right? Uh, which has well, actually, maybe a little to do with dairy cows. Uh, I was going to say it has nothing to do with cheese, but it does have something to do with it. Uh, <laughs> um, in, the, in the late 19th and early 20th century, we had a politics in the state. And this speaks to your point about the progressive politics of the upper Midwest, um, where you know, we had some political figures. One of them was this dude named Fighting Bob La Follette, uh, who was you know, looking at the economic inequality and the power that... Um, you know, the, the corporate elites had in, in, in our state. And the, and, and the fall, it was a graduate of the university of Wisconsin uh, at that time, just called university of Wisconsin, but in Madison and uh, worked with the UW, right. Uh, um, to create a series of, pro of progressive legislation. Um, and er over the course of the early 20th century, progressive legislators in Wisconsin and labor unions all had connections with a group of intellectuals at the university of Wisconsin. In fact, Social Security in the 1930s uh, was based on the work of a professor, uh, not exclusively, but like a lot of the ideas of a professor at the University of Wisconsin. Um, Theodore Roosevelt called the University of Wisconsin like the exemplar of a public university in the early 20th century. So, um, you know, when we talk about education can't solve the problems of the labor market in an individual sense, we're absolutely right. But the the, the promise of of public higher ed in particular is that we're able to to use the the skills and the and the um you know the 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 ability and the time that that intellectuals have to create policies that can actually solve that can actually solve these problems right and and that's the promise of a good public university system and of course our students benefit from that but that's the way that education can actually help solve some of these problems and and that's the kind of UW system that Neil and I are fighting for Beautifully put. And of course, there is also this little thing called citizenship uh, and the idea that some of education is not just about getting a job, although that's important, too. Um, I wanted to ask you, John, about another key concept that you touch on later in the book, but that has become, if anything, almost more commonplace in everyday policy discourse than has Becker and human capital, and that's the idea of the creative class and its invention 20 or so years ago by Richard Florida, who, you know, gets paid 50, 100 grand lecture to wander around the world with his surfboard to explain to people that soccer moms are the future of the globe and <clears throat> there will be no jobs that are any good for uneducated people, but more specifically that we should, in a sense, accept the end of manufacturing, uh, the end of agriculture, 
in the global north as areas that can provide a fecund setting for an emergent or reconstituted middle class. So I never got paid 50 or 100 grand to roll around with my surfboard, but I think I know what the dude's on about and why it's been so successful. What's your take on the idea of the creative class? And can you tell us what the heck it is? First of all, Toby, you should definitely get paid like 50 or 100 Gs to roll around on a surfboard. Like, I would like to see that. I bet a lot of your listeners would like to see that. So, like, let's start there. Absolutely. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, okay, so the creative class is basically, it's a it's a concept that, as you noted, comes out from this dude named Richard Florida uh, in the early 2000s. And, you know, it's it's a, honestly, it was just sort of a repackaging of ideas that had been around for a very long time, right? Uh, Peter Drucker ca- talked about uh, uh, information economy, uh, you know, in, in the 90s, Neil, of course, knows this, you had lots of uh, academics and, po- and political figures both talking about the knowledge economy, right? This is the knowledge economy, right? If you don't have the right degree, you're not going to, um, you know, you're, you're not going to be able to succeed. Robert Reich, who has become a, a deep critic in the United States of, of wealth and income inequality, some of the stuff he did in the 90s as Clinton's Secretary of Labor was, as I looked more at it, was really I mean, I think gross is honestly the only word that I could use for it. And he's actually sort of apologized for it. Um, but like he he talked in a, in a book that came out in the early 90s, he talked about uh, the book's called The Work of Nations, right? A, a clear, you know, uh, play on uh, Adam Smith. He talked about these things called symbolic analysts, right? These were the people who were had the educations and and it was important to get as many more Americans into this class as possible. We were going to be the, what was going to se- separate the United States was, you know, we were going to be the kind of like uh, creative class of, of corporate, of global corporations. That's how we were going to save things, not by like protecting good jobs for people, people without college degrees. So all those things, Florida just repackages those. Um, I, I think it's probably pretty accurate to call Richard Florida a grifter, honestly, uh, an academic grifter. I don't use that in the book, but I'm pretty comfortable saying that. Who repackaged those things and 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 brought them into an, the urban geography, right? And said, uh, particularly with cities, here's how this works. What a city should do to be successful is to like leverage uh, the creative class that exists there, right? So so these are people who are artists, uh, tech tech people, um, you know, small business entrepreneurs. Um, you know, uh, artists, uh, I already said artists, musicians, right? All these kinds of people. And if you think about what those people have in common, right? And I write about this in the book. They're basically people with college degrees, right? Uh, they're people with college degrees. And so Florida just says, you know, like the economy is, that's the future. It's knowledge workers. Well, Neil points this out in his book. We have as many people working in manufacturing now as we did during the time Richard Florida was writing this stuff. The service sector, Florida did note that the service sector was getting bigger, um, but you know the, the reality is, as Neil points out, and I've learned a lot about this from him, uh, the economy is always going to have people who make stuff. And I'm probably actually using lines that Neil's used now, so I want to just attribute that. The economy is always going to have people who make stuff and and do the things that make our economy function, and that's probably going to be most of the people. Um, but when you make arguments like Florida did, and, and he was a massive celebrity, as you noted, particularly in the early 2000s, you know, like going to cities after he had a uh, what was it called? Uh, it was like a uh, an index that he had, a creativity index that like cities would try to like shoot for by creating art districts and investing in tech and and things like that. 
um, that, of course, aren't going to make cities better. In fact, it probably made the inequality in many cities much, much worse, um, you know, pushed uh, working people to the periphery. Right. And and those are the vast majority of the people in the city, the people that serve food and clean the restaurants where the the tech entrepreneurs are, you know, holding their their, uh, you know, uh, business meetings and all that stuff. And so this is the, the but but the thing that's important about Florida is that is the impact on on American politics, right? Because it basically told and not that like probably most of the people cleaning those those restaurants were reading Richard Florida, but when that filtered into especially Democratic Party politics, it effectively told working people that Dems didn't have anything for them, right? I mean, remember Hillary Clinton in 2016 saying, "I'm going to put a lot of coal miners out of business." You know, that's taken out of context. And, and you know, I, I'm being a little unfair to say that, you know, she just didn't care about working people. She was also, she, you know, she talked a lot about how, like, you know, a lot of the pain working people were feeling was because of bigger economic changes. Um, but this is the problem is that Democrats and not all of them, but but many of them for too long, especially at the national level, have bought into these mythologies about how whatever you want to call it, a knowledge economy, um, creative class. That uh, by focusing on bringing more people into that, that would be the way to make people economically prosperous. Uh, and it just was never possible. It can't be possible for the reasons that Neil's outlined in his book. And so, uh, you know, like increasingly those people are like, well, why vote or why vote for maybe I'll vote for a Republican. At least they're going to keep my taxes low. And and it's been actually tragic. And people like Richard Florida Grifters like Richard Florida bear a huge level of responsibility for that. And I'm sorry, but I just have to be like completely candid about that. Neil? Yeah, I mean, if, if I could expand on John's outstanding explanation, I, I don't deal with Florida in my book, but I dispute the notion of a knowledge economy throughout the book. Uh, what's been, you know, kind of frustrating to me is it's so easy to empirically disprove these notions. I mean, you don't even have to look up the numbers. You can just go to any downtown USA and just go into a building, walk around and just start counting or, or observing the number of people, what jobs they're doing and compare people who are wait staff and people who clean and people who are bartenders and, and people who do, you know, who drive uh, transportation uh, and people, all these different things to so-called knowledge workers or uh, people in what, you know, Florida calls the creative class. I mean, it, it's just so easy to, to sort of disprove this, that, that numerically, that you, we're not dominated by jobs that require uh, much education beyond high school. 60% of jobs, according to the Bureau of Labor Statistics, right, in the United States, typically require a high school degree or less. That's just because the jobs that dominate the economy are not knowledge jobs. They're warehouses and they're home health care aides and they're wait staff and their food services and and things of this nature um, that are largely low paid because they're largely non-unionized and because we've had a minimum wage that's been frozen for decades at the national level. Um, but I think, you know, the work of Florida, it, it, it and John would know this. I assume he was ideologically a liberal, right? I mean, yeah. Oh, so yes. I mean, Neil Smith was on his dissertation committee, a Marxist geographer. And okay. Florida relies on referring to the late Neil Smith's membership of the committee to show that he has 
uh, impeccable credentials. Yeah. So I assumed that. I, I again, I've not really looked at his work with much in, in much detail, but it, it gives you know it gives uh, the Clinton administration, eventually the Obama administration, this. Hey, wait! If the liberals think this, then it then it it must be liberal scholars think this. Then it must be it must be solid, and um, you know it's very frustrating because that then it becomes uh, you know difficult to kind of counter those arguments. Um, but you know, a period of decades progress, and, and educational attainment keeps increasing. And we have the highest high school attainment that we've ever had. We have more people with four-year and graduate degrees than we've ever had. And yet we still have widening inequality and stagnant wages for most people. So that's why I think going back to where we started, perhaps we're at a a transition period here uh, in terms of where do we go from here? Because I think more and more people, and even if you look at the creative class that, that John mentioned, I mean, does he, does, I don't know, this is a question for John or for, you know, an open question, like does Florida look at, I mean, musicians and artists, how much, how much do these folks make? I mean, I was a drummer in a previous life. I've known a bunch of, of local drummers in my local musicians in my life. I mean, they're making very little money regardless of their education. Artists, most artists are, have to do multiple jobs just to do their art. I mean, I don't even know if if he's looking at reality there on those very creative occupations by definition, right? Who and many of of the individuals doing them are in, in fact highly educated, but w- what are they earning? What are their wages? Um that's another matter. Well, the the dissertation on which all this is based is his attempt when he was living in Pittsburgh to understand how Pittsburgh was making a transition from a rust belt city, in inverted commas, i.e. a former manufacturing heart, particularly steel, into a software city, which it did do in certain ways. And in the 80s, the local administration poured money into attracting software companies, along with, of course, the cluster of private and public universities that were there. And he thought, sorry, go ahead. I was just going to say health healthcare was a huge part of that. And, UPMC and is the and biggest the employer. Cluster of these things as being a recipe for the future. So what you needed was strong telecommunications and software development, large numbers of highly qualified people, and a cool arts sector. And yeah. these things would attract more and more investment from exactly some of those areas. So the way this operates in in many cities, of course, and New York is a a classic in, say, the area of Chelsea, is that places that become cool because they're low income, low rent domains where artistic workers go because it's low rent and it's central to a city and there's lots of space. Once they are known to be cool, price all those people out for just the reasons Neil mentions. And so... The role of the artist in this in this fantasy is in a way to be an advertisement for gentrification. But uh, yeah, yeah, anyway. they're, 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 yeah, they're they're there to be part of the the background, to be part of the scene, right? And 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 I think there's a really important point there that that connects to a lot of the bigger dynamics we've been talking about because this view of the city. Is one. It's very different than like you think about the like New York City and the you know social democratic 
politics that ran that city in the 50s, 60s, and 70s when, you know, the, the, the um, university system was literally free until the fiscal crisis in 1975, right? It's that this is the city in which we are going to invest in working people. We're going to make sure that people have the resources they need. This version of the city is one that's a playground for, you know, the entrepreneurial class. And actually, I want to say one other thing about this, because Florida talks about that one of the things we need to accept in the early 2000s is that people are rootless, right? That, that, and that that's a good thing. They don't have the encumbrances that they used to have. They can just pick up and move to another city at any given time. Well, that sounds good if you are one of these like cosmopolitan people who, by the way, are not the majority of the country, but living in a place like Wisconsin, right? Like we see this, you know, for them, community actually means something, right? They, they, you, you can't just pick up and leave a place like Green Bay. Your, your family's there, your community's there, you're, you've got generations of people who have worked in similar jobs. And so you listen to somebody basically say like, well, if there's no jobs where we are, just get up and move. That's not a reality for most people. They don't want that reality. And that's something that our political system has lost and conservatives are are able to pick up on that big time. So that's I'm glad you mentioned that because that's another way that Richard Florida uh, like deeply damaged. Uh, it, you know, it wasn't just him alone, but like these kind of discourses like deeply damaged American politics. Yeah, and I think that that you must not have kids in schools either. They can just uproot them and go to another school. I mean, that reminds me of what Ronald Reagan told the told the displaced workers in Roger and me, just go south, right? <laughs> Uh, Michael Moore's film Roger and Me, and 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 you know, as if that's just just easy to do. Um, yeah, it, I mean it's really frustrating when when these kind of ideas, you know, take hold and nobody really reflects on them, and and we start pushing certain policies and ignoring other things, and uh, um, and inequality continues to grow. Well, guys, I've got two more questions for you, and then as Neil knows, I'd like to throw it open to both of you to subtract from or add to what we've discussed. Does that sound okay? Yeah. So first question is, I'm a big bad right winger, and I'm saying these two dudes are onto something when they say it's wrong to think education can help fix the economy and specifically inequality. And the reason is education is too full of people like them. It is replete with tenured radicals, an old 80s expression, uh, it is replete with classes that are of no value in terms of articulating working people into jobs. How does one answer that accusation, which is in a sense, we believe in education, but you're not doing it the right way? You want to go first, John? You want me to sure. Yeah. Um, so, uh, first of all, I think um, we have to acknowledge that, uh, you know, to a certain extent, like, like there's a there's a kernel of truth in in that argument, right? Not that we're not literally translating people into good jobs, but that the education, we've overpromised what the education system can do. And smart people on the right are picking this up in this country, actually. So, like, there's a there's a dude named Oren Cass who started a think tank called the American Compass. I had Oren out to speak. He's a conservative. I had him out to speak at UW-Green Bay couple years ago and and i personally really like Oren. he's a big celtics fan and so we were talking about the we had we've we've kind of once in a while we exchange a note about the celtics and the bucks and nba basketball but um uh he he's written this book that that makes a kind of version of that argument which is like we need to stop focusing on education because uh nobody's paying attention to the inequality and the experience of like working class people 
He's even to a certain extent said there's a place for unions, just not for the state to support unions, that unions play this role in like, for, you know, developing civic life. So there's like a there's like a um, funhouse mirror version of the argument that Neil and I are making on the right. And then, of course, when you add to that the culture stuff, right, that you've got professors telling our kids about, you know, transgender people in a way that's going to make them come home from, you know, uh, to come home to Christmas and, and you know, kind of wag their finger at us for not understanding pronouns, that kind of thing. Right. That's out there. So, you know, for me and, I, and Neil may have other thoughts on this, but, you know, when I think about what we're doing in higher ed, we can't just do what we're doing in higher ed. We need other allies. So like when I think about the work we're doing as labor, we have to connect with other educator unions. We have to connect to the bigger labor dynamics. Neil talked about the sort of historic popularity of labor unions right now. That means like when the UAW goes on strike, you know, we, we got to be there and then we got to expect them to be where we are because we need to get, uh, we, we, we have to put what we're doing in education and this is how why the education myth has been so damaging, right? It used to be that people thought about education as part of a bigger set of social democratic things that needed to happen. So like actually the public schools in the United States, one of the biggest groups pushing for them in states like New York and Pennsylvania in the 1830s were working men's organizations, unions, because they saw the value in having their kids, and we're talking about jobs, they saw the value in their kids having the education to participate in democracy, Right. Uh, so like, that's the tradition we need to lean on and we need to be able to like, and it's difficult. It's difficult for our colleagues to do this because we've been fed the human capital narrative for so long, but we have to be able to talk about what it is that we're doing in the, in the enterprise of education and how that connects to all these other bigger rights. So, you know, the right to a job, I, I mean, these are all things I believe in the right to a job, the right to healthcare, the right to housing. These aren't things that you just get if you happen to get the you know right education, Everybody deserves them, full stop, right? And so when we talk about the right to education, it needs to be in the context of that. And we need to make that argument at every turn because the right actually has no ideas, right? Like there, there, there's nothing they're ever going to do to improve the, I mean, Orrin Cass in his book talks about subsidizing the wages of employers that pay very low wages, right? Like that's not going to really move the needle in this country. So they actually have no ideas. Uh, but the the problem is that the left has for way too long not being able to talk about what our vision is, what needs to be done and how education fits into it. That's actually how we win. And I know that's difficult, but that's what we have to do. I think, you know, in, in response to to the, the question you posed, Toby, I mean, what I argue in the book is that if you take the basics of neoliberalism in the last several decades, Unions are no longer relevant. Uh, the offshoring of work, deindustrialization, uh, an exclusive emphasis on education as the only path, the only means to economic opportunity. If you, if you just take, you know, I could elaborate on some other things. The, the increasing consolidation of the economy, the increasing monopolization of virtually all major sectors. Right. You take all these policies, a frozen minimum wage. They're all dreadfully unpopular. They were unpopular in the 80s and 90s. They're unpopular today. Labor unions are at 70 percent today. Most people believe the minimum wage should be increased. Right. Um, 
that that I would say to those folks that I mean, yeah, it's true that education is not going to be able to provide you um, with the economic guarantee you economic opportunity. Why? Because it's been assigned a role very intentionally, very deliberately that it can't that it can't carry out largely to impose what I, you know, believe is, is kind of obvious, a very unpopular system that works, um, works very well for a small number of people and not very well for a large number of people. Um, so I, I would, you know, I, I concede of course that education is not, is not the, the ticket to economic security, which by the way, is not a newsflash to the population. They're, they're way ahead of us. <laughs> they get that, right? They, 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 many of them, a large number of them are underemployed. A large number of them have very large student loans and don't make much money in the job that requires a college degree and so on and so forth. So they're, they're ready. They're ready. Um, and I think the role of education has to be, you know, we have to reclaim the, the role of education as, you know, creating citizens in a democracy, the multidimensional sort of aspects of education that really have been eroded almost entirely by seeing seeing education as only uh, a means of advancing economically. That has to be, that has to be addressed and that has to be reversed. Uh, And and again, I mean, I, I think that quite a few people of all political ideologies are, are ready for that. Uh, Are they're ahead of us. They're certainly ahead of, in my view, much of the education system. Uh, in terms of how we think about these things, and and uh, you know, I don't think it's it, it's as hard of, of a sell as it might appear. So, just a quick footnote: John referenced the UAW, which historically stood for the Union of Auto Workers. It's now got a much longer, more complicated title, but it's expanded from having been a really crucial union, especially in Detroit, in the the heart of U.S. auto manufacturing to become something that extends its significance to people in many, many different professions, yeah, and occupations. So my last question before I throw it open to you guys is to ask what's on the docket next and when can we expect a Krauss-Shelton co-authored volume? We're we're thinking about co-headlining a hip-hop festival, actually. Of course. What was I thinking? I don't know, John and I have written a few columns together. I'm sure we're going to write some more columns together. Who knows? Maybe we'll write a, maybe we'll write something bigger at some point. Like, like you said earlier, it's almost like earlier, it's almost like we have kind of the same brain and, and I know what he's going to say and he knows what I'm going to say. So we certainly um, are well suited to, to do, to do uh, continued collaboration. Yeah. I mean, I think for me, you know, I'm, I'm definitely, um, I, I have ideas for other stuff. Um, one thing I'd really like to write. So one of the things I talk about a lot in the book is the this this law called the Humphrey Hawkins Act, uh, which was passed in 1978 as a sort of a missed opportunity. Um, and I think it really was because it 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 was something that Coretta Scott King, Martin's widow, was pushing for uh, in 75, 76. Um, and and the two sort of co-authors of that bill, one was uh, Hubert Humphrey, who uh, was this very important liberal senator from Minnesota. And the other was this guy named Augustus Hawkins, who was a co-founder of the Congressional Black Caucus, represented Watts in California. 
And they kind of just came together at this moment and pushed for, again, this thing that would have been a jobs guarantee. But you have a, a shift in the Democratic Party at like pretty much exactly the same time. And, and Jimmy Carter and his administration are largely responsible for kind of stymieing uh, a, a version of the bill that would have actually kind of moved the needle. I see this moment as sort of like the last best chance for, at least until very recently, for the kind of multiracial social democratic democracy that would have prevented something like Reagan and prevented the kind of path that we were on and and commit the Democratic Party to something much more robust. I, I'd like to uh, explore that through the, the prism of uh, like a, a dual biography of both of those two people. I don't know if I'll ever get to it, though, because at, at this point, like, you know, the activist work that I'm doing is taking up more and more of my time. And and that's a good thing. I mean, I, you know, like, I'd, I'd love to be able to write that book at some point. But, you know, it's, I'm, it's not like I'm working on or anything yet. Um, you know, it's just, uh, there's, there's too many, the future is too much in the balance right now. And so that's kind of where I'm at. But yeah, Neil and I will continue to work closely together. And um, I think at, at some point, we'll, I mean, we're going to continue to probably write other stuff. And at some point, like, I'd love to write something with Neil. So um, we, we also write really well together. Um, I think that's something that's actually kind of difficult for a lot of academics to do, especially at least in my field. And, uh, you know, so it's, we have a kind of a good process for bouncing ideas back and forth. And so I, I think we could probably write something pretty great. We should be looking for that opportunity, man. Beautiful. So guys, uh, are there things that we haven't touched on that you'd like to bring up now or areas where we have described things, but you want to add, subtract? I mean, I would say just, just one quick thing, going back to a discussion we had a moment ago um, about healthcare uh, and, and going back to the UW system. We hear all the time that healthcare is a high demand field. And so, so, um, uh, so the, the, you know, UW system, and this is across the United States, should add programs in healthcare and and so on and so forth. Uh, there again, when you look at the number, uh, the number and type of jobs, there are actually a decent number of jobs in healthcare. But when we look at the actual jobs in the healthcare system, I would encourage all your your listeners to next time they interact with the medical system, just again look around all the people. There is one doctor, there's one registered nurse, there's a few other medical specialists, but then there are a number of other people, the majority, that, that don't have, uh, don't need college degrees uh, and, and have some sort of training perhaps beyond high school. In other words, the, the notion that, that uh, healthcare will, there's all these jobs, these high uh, education, high skill, high wage jobs in the healthcare system. Um, when you look at the actual numbers, uh, doesn't doesn't bear out, um, and yet healthcare seems to be an increasing emphasis of of uh, higher ed reformers and and to the you know again this all comes at the expense of liberal arts majors and so forth. Um, that's what we're up against. Um, STEM I think has just been um, you know I disproven a number of times. There's another there's a new book. Uh, forget the name. The, the author was did a piece in the LA Times the other day. Someone sent it to me. Uh, kind of, you know, the, the notion that there's all these STEM jobs has just been disproven time and again. Um, so now a lot of folks are moving on to healthcare, um, and yet they're, the healthcare job market is is not nearly uh, uh, what it's being portrayed, in my view. Yeah, I think, I, and I think what I'd like to add is, I'd like to expand a little bit about 
the stakes of where we are politically in this this country in the world you know I, i'm a historian and uh you know so i've think about the past all the time basically right i teach about the past and you know we've got a presidential election this year that that i think uh people are looking at very uh cynically right i mean like um trump is trump is clearly going to be the republican nominee he's going to be even more on already is more unhinged than he was you know four or eight years ago and, and then you've got biden who represents this um honestly the politics of low expectations right i mean he's he's in my view like advanced a lot from obama right in terms of the education stuff and and you know he's done some really good things but we've kind of just accepted the idea that like well we just can't do anything big in politics right there was this whole period of time where people were calling biden the most pro labor president ever or like or at least since fdr it's like not even close not even close i mean fdr ushered in transformative laws for working people in this country and and Biden's done nothing like that and and hasn't even spoken I mean he was on the picket lines of the UAW once but like hasn't done very much to push for the kind of labor reform that we need in this country and so I think everybody is exhausted in the United States with the political choices that exist it's an exhaustion with the the set of political possibilities we've had um, and, and the fact that like, you know, we've had a number of people on the left basically say like, we're going to change things. Obama was a big part of this. We're going to make big changes and they don't. Right. And nothing changes. And so, you know, I think where people are is in a place where it's like, if we're voting for Biden, we're doing it to prevent this utterly deranged, uh, you know, right wing, almost probably fascist person from becoming president. And that's just no way to keep people politically engaged. That's not a politics that's sustainable. It's like we're constantly one election away from, you know, something really, really terrible happening. It feels you like for me, it constantly feels a little bit like Weimar Germany, you know, and um, like we've got to We've got to go to the barricades just to prevent the worst from happening. Right. It's constant popular front. And that's not sustainable. So like long term in this country and probably the world, but I don't know, I only focus on the US. I'm I'm an American, so that's what I do, <laughs> like all Americans. But um long term, we got two choices. We we commit to a social democratic future where working people can see themselves and see their economic needs met and see themselves as as um you know full citizens in a democracy, people capable of contributing to something and having a life that means something, or we get right-wing reaction. Th those are the choices. There's no other choice. Like th this, this, this version of politics that we have, just continuing to elect, uh, you know, Democrats who never change anything, it, it, it's not sustainable. It's just not. I mean, and, and, and even if it were politically sustainable, ecologically, it's unsustainable. So, you know, for me, like, and I'm going to circle back to what Neil said, because that fantasy about healthcare is like this, this, when, when people hear just like, well, we just got to invest in the right jobs and the right tech, and that's going to save us. It's such a politics of low expectations and Americans are so tired. I don't know if I'm allowed to curse on this, but like American, can I curse Toby? I feel like it's warranted. Americans are so tired of that bullshit. They are so tired of it. And that is the the person who works in the, in the factory who lives across the street from me, it's it's our students who don't see a future for themselves, even if they get a college degree. And, you know, in, in, unless we build a, a political force 
capable of fighting for the future that we need and labor will be integral to that we have no future right like we just don't and and that drives me every day and that's the question that drives me every day and that's why i'm a union member and that's why i'm running for city council and that's why i'm doing all the things that i'm doing and i know it is for neil too so you know like never like what i would say to people is like never lose sight of what the stakes of of these conversations are understanding where it is that economic security comes from it's it's a question that's fundamentally important right and so you know neil is asking fundamentally important questions that this podcast is asking fundamentally important questions and so for me the big thing is after that what do we do with that information um so that's my soapbox for the day prof john prof neil thank you both very much uh, I've learned a great deal from reading the two books that we've been touching on, and I've learned even more from talking to you both today. Toby, thanks so much. We'll look for you on that surfboard. Thanks very much, Toby.